Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a pretty interesting guest. So we have a guest that uh, he has been at it, you know, for 20 years. So obviously there is a lot of experience there, a lot of lessons and a lot of insights. So I think that without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Ganges Ganesan. Welcome to the show today. Uh, thank you, uh, Leandro. Great to be on the show today with you. So originally you grew up in India, born in, and raised there in India. So how was how was life there in India? I was good. Uh, you know, I grew up in southern India. Um, had a great, uh, uh, great uh, you know life with my uh, family and uh, one younger brother. And um, uh, ended up doing my uh, early schooling there and uh, did my undergrad uh, engineering degree uh, in India. And uh, I came to the U.S. in 1993. So just out of curiosity, why is everyone in India doing engineering? What's going on? Uh, it's a it's a very interesting question. Uh, you know, broadly speaking, uh, you know, uh, India is a populous country. Uh, so by very definition, uh, there's lots and lots of people, uh, you know, studying advanced degrees, uh, engineering uh, being one of the more popular fields. In my specific case, my father actually worked in a, in an engineering company. Uh, it was a uh, it was a chemical uh, engineering company, um, and my father himself actually was not an engineer. Uh, he was an accountant. Uh, he worked in finance uh, area, finance and accounting. Um, but uh, all the people who were uh, you know friends of my father, um, and therefore you know people that I, I looked up to at that time were engineers. Uh, so that's why I ended up being an engineer. But that said, in India, uh, engineering is regarded very high, uh, very highly, simply because uh, you know people in India one value education to uh, they think engineering is probably uh, one of those uh, good career choices uh, for their children. So parents highly encourage their children uh, to study engineering. Got it. So was it was it a crazy transition where all of a sudden you find yourself in Minnesota doing your master's in electrical engineering? Uh, absolutely. Um, you know, interesting thing is that uh, I grew up from the, in the absolute southern part of India, uh, which is roughly a few degrees north of the equator. So, you know, obviously my life experience was entirely about living uh, where the temperature, uh, the lowest temperature was 80 degrees Fahrenheit and the highest temperature was 120 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, I come and land in Minnesota, the land of the lakes and land of the cold. 
you know, absolute frozen place, uh, you know, so uh, welcome to real world, Neo. Uh, and I was facing, you know, minus 20 degrees and, and the like. Uh, so it was a transition. Uh, but I came to do my master's in engineering. And so, um, you know, uh, I had enough skills in my engineering that, uh, you know, education wise, it was OK. Uh, but, uh, you know, sort of culturally and, and certainly temperature wise, uh, it was a dramatic shift. Got it. So obviously it took a bit for you to really go at it. So first you did a little bit of a, of a rodeo in, in corporate. So uh, I know that this was obviously your first exposure to, to networking and telecommunications. So, so I know that your first job was Bosch and then you did Cypress Semiconductor. So what did you learn from, from what were like the key insights that you got from, let's say, those two experiences, which was about eight years? Uh, yeah, so Bosch uh, was an interesting company. It was my first company, a uh, global conglomerate, one of the largest uh, companies in Europe, um, and they had a division out of North America. Um, you know, it was a very, very diverse company. Uh, the particular division that I was working for was on telecommunications uh, based in Midwest. Uh, you know, the culture was very, very Midwestern. Um, you know, people there typically worked in the company for 20, 30 years. Um, so when I joined the company, uh, there were a lot of veterans in the company, uh, people who had worked for many, many years. Uh, so it was sort of a very interesting culture. Um, I, uh, I started there as an engineer and then eventually moved to product management um, and, uh, and ended up running a, a, a small business uh, inside Bosch. Um, at uh, Cyprus, though, the company is very different, Silicon Valley company. Uh, the CEO of Cyprus Semiconductor uh, at that time was uh, a gentleman by the name T.J. Rogers, uh, who's a legendary founder in Silicon Valley, um, a very interesting personality, very outspoken, very abrasive, um, used to write Wall Street Journal articles very frequently um, on, uh, on on technology and, and how to run a technology company. Uh, so uh, I came to Cyprus where the culture was a very, uh, how should I say, fast-moving Silicon Valley culture, um, you know, very different from Bosch. Uh, but, uh, you know, in both places, the interesting thing is that Bosch, uh, the culture of the company is very, very strong. Um, you know, obviously they valued the employees, um, you know, very much um, and uh, wanted to satisfy their clients uh, at all uh, at all costs. Uh, so that was sort of Bosch culture. Uh, Cyprus had a very, very strong culture as well. Uh, they really be uh, believed that the culture of the people uh, really translated into uh, success with customers. So they really screened for culture of the people who they hired. So both were very interesting journeys, um, you know, for me. Uh, learned a lot of uh, interesting tools and skills at both companies. And obviously for you now is the first time that you start to to really get to experience, you know, like what business is all about rather than being so engineering focused. So, so what was that transition for you where, you know, like all of a sudden, you know, you're starting doing business, which is something that you had no clue about because all you knew was to how to resolve complex situations as an engineer. That's right. So um, when I, you know, the, the, the first part of the transition here happened at, uh, at Bosch. And uh, when I first took over, um, you know, um, you know, running a business, I mean, it was actually an abrupt transition for me. I was uh, heading a, an engineering team. Um, you know, I started as an individual contributor very quickly. They liked me and uh, they promoted me a couple of times. I ended up running an engineering group. And then suddenly uh, they actually asked me to run an adjoining sister business. Uh, that was looking for a business leader and it was very different. I actually had to go, um, you know, I, I recall in the very first week on a trip to uh, UK um, and meet with the team there. Um, you know, part of the business, uh, you know, was located in UK and part of it was located in Germany. 
Um, and um, I um, had to, uh, and, and here I was, uh, you know, purely an engineer, at least in the minds of those people, uh, trying to come in and, uh, you know, possibly, you know, suggest ideas on how to run this business better. Uh, so uh, it was a learning process. And, uh, you know, a couple of years there at Bosch, um, you know, was entirely learning, um, you know, for me. Um, I should say in retrospect, um, you know, I have great friends today at Bosch. Uh, even today, uh, that I that I remained in touch with, there were some great mentors there that helped me. Uh, but I should say, in that first transition from engineering to business, uh, the first couple of years, I really struggled. Um, you know, I I was bringing mostly an engineering centric view into running a fairly complex business, um, and I needed a lot of help from a lot of people uh, to uh, really uh, you know a contribute to that area and b um, even make that transition. So, you know, now I look upon it fondly, but uh, at that time, I, I should say that I probably struggled. So then what kind of help did you need? And then also what kind of people did you surround yourself with to, to be able to, 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 to get back up and running? Uh, yeah, so uh, there were several key people at Bosch, uh, you know, um, you know the, uh, uh, the, the president of the business unit, uh, his name was Dan Dantzler, uh, who really took me under his wing and helped me, coached me. Uh, would uh, help me and uh, even tell me how to run a meeting um, um, or how to uh, interact with some people. Uh, so, uh, oh, a lot of thanks to Dan. Um, and uh, the head of the business, uh, you know, uh, the the uh, to whom I reported to, uh, his name was Ralph Strader. Uh, and Ralph as well gave me a lot of coaching, particularly on product management. Uh, they, Bosch, uh, decided to uh, send me to uh, an executive MBA program. So, University of Minnesota had an executive MBA program at the time. So, I continued working full-time, but uh, every other Friday and Saturday, I would go, uh, you know, to school, to University of Minnesota full-time, and uh, and in two years, I finished my MBA. They thought uh, interacting with other peers uh, who are coming to management school uh, and having a broader business vision would help me in my job. So, uh, you know, those were kind of the things that happened for me. So, what I surrounded myself with was, um, you know, you know, peers from industry with whom I could learn, uh, and also uh, other key mentors in the company. Uh, so I want, you know, so that opportunity was uh, was offered to me. So obviously now, you know, like on your next gig, you know, with Cypress, here you are, you know, you start to experience Silicon Valley. You start to make uh, good friendships there, and and obviously one of those friendships, you know, really got you into the world of startups. So so what happened there? Yeah, so um, you know, uh, Cypress, uh, you know, still a very large semiconductor company, one of the largest semiconductor companies today, still in Silicon Valley, um, and um, you know, I um, I did well uh, in the networking area. Uh, the clients were mostly uh, Cisco and a whole bunch of other networking clients. Uh, you know, some of them, um, you know, don't exist anymore directly in the same way, but Nokia, Ericsson, Alcatel, Lucent, um, you know, um, you know, some uh, big telecom vendors uh, in Japan, uh, you know, Asia. Uh, so uh, global clients. Um, and so it was a great opportunity for me to uh, learn about global business. Uh, so Cyprus gave me that opportunity uh, to travel and meet networking clients around the world. Uh, that was one. Two, uh, I met, uh, you know, one of the, 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 the person who ran that entire business, his name was uh, Kahal Phelan. Uh, and Kahal had been a long-term Cyprus, uh, you know, uh, executive. Uh, he had grown up in Cyprus uh, since the very, very early days of Cyprus. Uh, he reported directly to TJ Rogers, um, and uh, he became my mentor. Um, and, uh, you know, together we had an opportunity to spin out one of the businesses at Cyprus, uh, which we did. Uh, you know, we actually brought an investment banker, um, you know, and then spun that business out. 
and then uh, ended up selling it to a company called NetLogic Microsystems, which eventually became Broadcom. Um, and uh, we learned a lot. Uh, but, uh, you know, the thing that I learned most there uh, is not just about how to, you know, do such transactions, you know, which is one part of learning how to run a business, how to um, sell a company, uh, how to put a deal together and the like. Uh, but I also, um, you know, got a lot of help and coaching uh, from Kahal, who became my mentor. Uh, so uh, after selling this business off to, uh, to, uh, uh, to Broadcom, I ended up working for another company called Marvel Semiconductor. And Kahal went on and took over... Uh, as CEO of this company called Ubicom. Uh, and subsequently, uh, you know, Kahal recruited me uh, to join him at Ubicom, and I joined him at Ubicom. So uh, it was a pretty good journey at Cyprus. So obviously now once you join, you know, Ubicom, you know, there is a tough times that happen, you know, because obviously, you know, like we would experience, you know, the economic downturn and, and all these different events that, you know, were no fun. So uh, during one of those times, you know, like you were uh, literally, you know, like a, meeting with the board, you know, and, and, and here with your friend as well. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, things took a turn. What happened there? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I owe a lot to Kahal, uh, you know, because prior to that, I was always working one level below the CEO, right? Kahal reported into the CEO at Cyprus. Um, and uh, when I came to uh, Ubicom, Kahal was the CEO, so I reported directly to him. And, uh, you know, Kahal was very open and friendly, and he'd make me present to the board directly. And so uh, during the board meetings, uh, I had an opportunity now to work and uh, work with large VCs uh, who are investors in Ubicom, um, you know, and also work with board members. Uh, and I learned that skill, uh, and, and Kahal coached me a lot in how to present uh, to the board. Uh, but as you mentioned, uh, absolutely right, in one of the board meetings, uh, the board, uh, you know, the meeting somewhat uh, took an interesting turn. Uh, and at the end of the board meeting, I found myself being requested by the board to take over as a CEO uh, because the board uh, was deciding to let Kahal go. And here I was, uh, you know, my, my mentor who had actually brought me into the company and coached me for many years. Uh, that I'm going to replace him and take over his job, which was, uh, you know, a, a difficult time. But uh, interestingly, Kahal helped me in that transition. He uh, he was very graceful um, and uh, very kind towards me uh, and uh, helped me in that transition to take over as the CEO. So uh, it is something that I'm eternally grateful to Kahal for. And I think that, you know, like that's probably a lesson for all of us, no? Because here is, you know, the founder, you know, of the business, you know, like being, you know, literally like a, Uh, told to leave, you know, by the board, and and here he is, you know, setting up to succeed. And what 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 did you learn, you know, I guess from as a human being, no, and professional from him from that. Uh, you know, I learned a lot actually, and even today, Kahal is one of my closest friends and mentors. Um, and you know, we 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 meet uh, very often um, and talk about life and business. Uh, but you're absolutely right. This was not just about business learning. It was about learning about life. Uh, that life can be different uh, and, and difficult at times and that you can have challenges um, and that you can have some situations that you're not even foreseeing uh, because as we walked into that board meeting, certainly we were not foreseeing uh, the particular outcome that ended up happening that day. So within a matter of, say, a couple of hours, here I was uh, in this particular situation. So what I learned was uh, that, uh, you know, uh, you have to learn to accept things in life. 
uh, and uh, you know, no matter what, uh, people uh, and uh, uh, and loyalty uh, to people uh, comes first. Uh, so Kahal, in that sense. Uh, was absolutely, uh, you know, teaching me the life lesson that uh, people matter and that loyalty to people matters uh, because that's what he really taught me. Uh, and so, you know, it's been something that's been deeply embedded in me and how I work now uh, in uh, uh, for the rest of my career. So obviously now, you know, like here you are taking over the reins. It's 2008, so the world is falling apart and you are tasked with fundraising. So what, what, what happened there? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, uh, 2008 is when this happened, and uh, as you, as we all know, 2008 was the was the absolute meltdown of the of the financial uh, you know world, and and in in general, uh, the the world went into a very very serious liquidity crunch. The most interesting part of the story for me is that uh, you know. Ubicom at this time was funded by venture capitalists. There were a couple of big, uh, you know, uh, uh, Sandal Road VCs that were uh, our investors. Uh, we also had a strategic investor at that time, Samsung. Um, and uh, one of the other investors, uh, big investors, was Lehman Brothers. And uh, if you recall, it was Lehman Brothers going down that actually caused the original financial panic in 2008. And Lehman Brothers had a VC arm. Uh, and it was called Tenaya Capital. Uh, it's still called Tenaya Capital. Uh, and they were one of our big investors. And so uh, this was a particularly challenging time to go raise capital. Um, and for a few months, it was touch and go. Uh, I did not know whether, uh, you know, the company would make it. Uh, you know, the association with Lehman Brothers in itself was looking like it would pull the company down. Uh, but eventually, um, you know, um, I made it through, uh, you know, my uh, existing investors and some new investors came in uh, and we ended up, uh, you know, um, you know, raising the capital, uh, but certainly learned that, uh, you know, uh, the, the big lesson that I learned was that uh, financing uh, is uh, is very important, uh, particularly in the context of timing. Uh, when there is an opportunity to raise capital, uh, do it and do it quickly rather than drag it and look for the best terms. Uh, because uh, sometimes, uh, you know, external market forces can come in and hit you, uh, and uh, you may not be able to recover from those shocks. Uh, at uh, Ubicom, I was lucky enough at that time uh, to recover, uh, but that was purely lucky. Uh, you know, that's uh, the big lesson I learned at that time. And in terms of uh, fundraising in a, in a downturn, you know, it, let, let's say if you had to deal with another downturn, you know, again in the future, what, what was your biggest lesson about raising money in a downturn? Um, you know, uh, two things, uh, you know, big lessons, um, you know, one uh, is sort of uh, perseverance. Uh, you know, you just have to go to a lot of people, uh, you know, during downturn in particular, uh, you have to be ready to think about non-traditional sources of financing. Uh, you'll have to go uh, wide uh, and talk to lots of people. Um, I should say at Ubicom, I may have talked to, you know, over 200 investors and finally two of them actually agreed to invest, right? Uh, and 200 investors was 200 meetings, maybe in some cases uh, more than one meeting. Uh, and in some cases, uh, you know, uh, the meetings were spaced apart over many, many weeks. Uh, so it was uh, a very long process. And so uh, as a CEO uh, or a founder, uh, you have to persevere during uh, these difficult times, not give up. So that's one lesson. Uh, lesson number two is the one that I earlier shared, which is uh, 
you when you have an opportunity to uh, you know to close a deal uh, you have to be ready uh, to close the deal quickly rather than uh, you know sort of uh, focus a little too much on terms valuation and the like because uh, it is a downturn and you have no idea how long the downturn uh, will last and uh, you're better off with cash in the bank rather than uh, you know facing uh, an even longer journey so those are the two key lessons I would tell anyone uh, who's trying to raise money uh, during a downturn very cool. And today, I actually, you know, read a stat that the uh, bear market is 13 months and then it's 22 months to recover after that. So, um, so pretty interesting data. But anyhow, here, Ganges, you know, you were, you, I would say, lucky, no? So preparation met uh, definitely opportunity and you guys ended up selling to uh, Qualcomm, which, uh, yeah. you know, quite a, a positive outcome given the circumstances that you were facing earlier. Uh, and then, you know, like you really go at it and you then start your own very own business. So so tell us about this with Locomatics. Yeah, so uh, it was just, this was a journey again, right? After selling the company to Qualcomm, uh, you know, I decided that I will take a brief hiatus. Um, you know, I was off for about a few months, you know, mostly traveling and recovering from uh, from uh, from uh, from my Ubicom time. Uh, it was a very busy, um, you know, five year career there, um, you know. And um, one of the opportunities that I, uh, you know, even though I was taking a break, I thought, you know, I'll attend a few conferences and the like. Um, and so I would attend a few different data conferences. And uh, the Hadoop world was just uh, emerging. The big data world was just emerging. Um, and, uh, you know, Hadoop was somewhat immature at this time. The companies, a lot of companies were getting formed in the big data world. And I uh, must have attended maybe 10 or 15 uh, conferences, uh, mostly here in Silicon Valley. I was blessed to be here in Silicon Valley. Uh, I attended a lot of these meetups and conferences uh, and found the whole area of big data fascinating. Uh, now, I had a, mostly a background here in, in networking. And, uh, and data really fascinated me at that time, thinking uh, that data is going to be the next big revolution. Um, and so decided that I will, uh, you know, if I'm going to do a company, I'm going to do it in data. Um, and so joined a group of entrepreneurs, um, you know, uh, a couple of people that I'd known socially. Um, you know, these, uh, you know, one of them uh, was um, uh, an active faculty member at that time at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in computer science. Uh, his name is Dr. Jignesh Patel. Uh, and uh, another uh, co-founder uh, was uh, Karthik Ramaswamy. He was uh, uh, he'd been at uh, Yahoo briefly um, and at a few other places. And uh, another co-founder, so there were four of us, uh, a co-founder called Sanjeev Kulkarni, uh, who had spent most of his career at Google uh, um, at this time. So the four of us uh, decided to kind of do locomatics, uh, you know, which was uh, how do you do streaming and real-time applications using Hadoop? And at this time, Hadoop was entirely batch uh, in non-real-time. And we thought, uh, you know, uh, doing real-time uh, using Hadoop and solving this big data problem would be very valuable. So we founded the company together and, uh, you know, sort of built the team. Uh, and, uh, you know, this time, Twitter was just about, uh, you know, uh, getting to be a, a popular mainstream social tool. And uh, obviously, Twitter need a lot of data insights, um, you know, and uh, they were trying to build a business around serving ads on their platform. Uh, and they thought uh, that the technology that we were building would, would be very valuable for them. Uh, and so very quickly, within, a, a, you know, about 18 months of founding the company, they came in and actually bought us. Um, and uh, they bought the technology. Uh, that technology is today open sourced. Um, it's uh, it's called uh, Apache Storm, uh, and uh, Storm is a very popular, even today, a stream data framework uh, used uh, in Wall Street in many other application areas. 
and uh, the, the the company Locomatics uh, technology is part of Apache Storm. Uh, and then when we went to Twitter, we actually built a, the next generation version of it uh, called Apache Heron, uh, which is the successor to Storm. Uh, both of these are fairly popular, um, you know, open source streaming frameworks today. Um, and, uh, you know, was very happy to be part of that uh, journey um, in uh, into the data world. But 18 months sounds like uh, not, not a long time, you know, what, why why so early did you guys like really what was that discussion that you guys had when you said well, let's pull the trigger and and make this transaction yeah so um you know uh like i told you uh you know i'd had a couple of different experiences before i'd sold a business uh you know to broadcom and i'd also had an opportunity to do the sale uh, of the company to uh to qualcomm ubicom to qualcomm and uh when twitter came in uh we were fairly early we had built our very first version of our product and we had a few early clients um, Orange, uh, the large telecom company, was one of our clients, um, and uh, the retail giant 7-Eleven was one of our clients. So we had just gotten our first couple of clients, and we were working with a few other clients. Uh, when Twitter came in and said, uh, hey, uh, we think it's uh, this technology is very valuable for us, uh, we'd like to buy uh, and like I said, in some cases, timing is everything. Uh, we felt, at least at that time, the four co-founders, uh, that uh, the best opportunity for this industry, uh, for us, uh, and for that technology was at Twitter. Um, the big data world was still fairly nascent. Uh, Hadoop was still uh, fairly young and immature. Uh, companies like Cloudera and uh, Hortonworks, uh, which all went public uh, and uh, you know much later, uh, were still trying to establish their business. So building streaming applications on Hadoop was still very early. So we thought, uh, you know, that was the right decision for us personally as the co-founders uh, based on the deal that was being offered to us uh, and uh, for uh, the uh, overall enablement and, uh, and usage of the technology. So, you know, my personal take on it is that that's kind of co-founder led, uh, founders led. Founders have to make the decision as to when is the right time to exit. For that company, we thought that was the right decision. In retrospect, it was the right decision. Very cool. And obviously, this was a nice segue into yeah. Pier Nova. So, uh, so obviously, you know, like Pier Nova, uh, you know, it's, it's your latest baby. Uh, and, you know, we'd love to hear how, how you incubated the idea and how did you bring it to life? Yeah. So, um, you know, you know, did the deal with uh, Twitter and then, um, you know, someone, uh, a friend of mine uh, pointed me, another friend of mine uh, pointed me towards uh, Bitcoin, uh, which was very early. At this time, no one knew about Bitcoin. Uh, you know, this was 2013 when Bitcoin hadn't hit mainstream consciousness. No one even knew about this. Uh, very few people were involved in the industry. Um, and uh, I read the original, uh, you know, the famous Satoshi Nakamoto white paper, really got interested, uh, thought I'll learn the idea uh, by actually starting a company. Uh, so ended up starting this company, uh, you know, Pianova. Um, and uh, the idea was that uh, we'll learn more about this, 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 this Bitcoin and what is this technology and what is its potential. Um, and, uh, you know, so in some sense, uh, you know, this company was started without a very clear mission early on, other than saying, hey, we're going to learn something about uh, this very interesting idea called Bitcoin. Um, and uh, we'll see where the journey takes us. So it was a true plunge as an entrepreneur into the unknown for me. Uh, started the company, um, and uh, the only thing that we thought we'll do at that time was learn the technology. And one way to learn the technology was to deeply immerse ourselves. And the way we immersed ourselves was actually mining Bitcoins. 
So we mined a few Bitcoins. Uh, it sort of looked interesting. And then we said, well, we'll mine us a few more. Um, and we joined another group. Uh, and very soon, uh, we were actually mining Bitcoins at scale. Uh, we were having 10 megawatts of power, uh, which is crazy, within nine months. Uh, we had mined thousands of Bitcoins. Um, and uh, Bitcoin uh, suddenly from about $10 went up to $1,000 in pricing. Uh, and, uh, you know, we saw, wow, there's maybe a business here to do. Uh, but, uh, you know, it was a journey. Uh, the early learning that we had was that uh, Bitcoin mining itself was somewhat of a commodity. Uh, while we did mine some Bitcoins um, and, uh, and Bitcoin price went up, uh, it was quite expensive to mine the coins because uh, the power costs for mining uh, were generally offset uh, by the price of the Bitcoin. So to pay the power bill, 10 megawatts of power uh, every month uh, meant that uh, the power bill was huge. Uh, we were paying power bills in the range of millions of dollars every month. And, uh, and uh, you know, but we were making, you know, Bitcoins as well or mining Bitcoins as well. Uh, but we realized that uh, maybe that's not the best thing to do with this technology. Uh, we uh, by now had actually gotten a deep understanding of the core technology behind Bitcoins, uh, which is called blockchain, uh, which allows us to build distributed software uh, for many different applications, including the financial markets. Uh, and so uh, within a year, the company actually found its true mission, which is how do you uh, use this blockchain technology, secure data and solve some problems that are very hard to solve uh, within the financial markets? And my knowledge of Hadoop and the streaming applications that I had built uh, for Locomatics came very handy. So I tried to combine the ideas from the big data world together with this blockchain Bitcoin world. And voila, that's uh, that's basically Nova for you. Uh, our core technology combines the best ideas from blockchain and connects it together with uh, some big data ideas uh, to solve some core problems within the financial market. So that's kind of uh, what Nova's journey has been. So obviously, there's going to be a lot of people that are, uh, you know, like not as not as say sophisticated when it comes to technology. You know, like that might be listening and and perhaps they're wondering, like, so how do they do this? How do they combine blockchain? What's blockchain? What what is this data play that they're doing? So so how would you you know like make it in a way that let's say uh, someone that has no clue from a tech perspective, like for them to really understand it. Yeah, so I'll give you a very simple uh, example of how things work, right? So uh, I'll take two contrasting companies. Uh, one will take uh, Google, uh, which is obviously a very modern uh, data company, which has essentially been the backbone of the internet companies, uh, you know, since uh, for the last, you know, 20 plus years, uh, uh, however long ago they were founded, right? Um, in, in Google, obviously, they're cataloging and searching the entire internet, uh, and they've invented many wonderful technologies uh, that allows them to operate at this giant scale. How do you actually allow anyone to search anything in the internet uh, and produce the result within you know, a second of typing uh, uh, anywhere on your mobile device, on your laptop, on your computer, anywhere? So that means Google knows how to actually organize all of the internet's data in some uniform way and give you the results that quickly. So that's Google. And there are a lot of companies in the new data world that model themselves on this kind of idea. Now, I'm going to contrast this with some other company. Uh, let's take a, a company like Citibank. Uh, as we know, Citi is another very big company. Um, you know, Citi has branches probably in hundreds of countries, uh, has thousands of branches, uh, is one of the big sprawling financial companies in the world. Uh, but Citi uh, has been put together by many mergers and acquisitions. 
Uh, and, you know, the parent company of City Corporation has been around for probably 100 years. Uh, you know, it's a very, you know, financial industry is a mature industry. Um, and uh, compared to Google, if you look at City, uh, City has... Uh, you know, lots and lots of data. Uh, they have client data for tens, hundreds of millions of clients worldwide. Uh, but uh, the challenge for City is that because they've been built over, you know, many decades, uh, their data is fragmented across many, many different systems uh, in many different applications. So inside City, uh, if I'm running a business inside City and I want to actually get a consolidated view uh, across all these different things, the effort that they have to do is very different and somewhat more difficult in some senses uh, than uh, Google's problem of organizing the internet. The reason for it is that here you're faced with many, many fragmented legacy applications and systems, not all of which have cataloged uh, and organized their data in a uniform manner. So what we at Piranova do is help city or any other financial institution like that organize their data in a more unified streamlined manner so that they can actually access any information like google does uh instantaneously that's number one number two because the data is fragmented in so many different places it is hard to know what data is correct and uh this technology behind bitcoins called blockchain allows us to more quickly and easily verify and validate the correctness of the data uh, in, in real time. So, uh, you know, so to the first order, what does Piranova do? We take many fragmented data sources that are there in any enterprise, particularly financial enterprises, and uh, bring them together in a way so we can unify them and we can validate validate and uh, and ensure the correctness of that data so that their business people can use it or their clients can use it uh, to make intelligent business decisions. That is what Piernova does. Very cool. And obviously for this, you guys have raised quite a bit. How much have you raised so far? Uh, you know, we've been fortunate. Uh, you know, Piernova is uh, supported by some great investors. Um, and, uh, you know, the investors and our clients uh, have been the reason why we've been so far uh, successful in raising capital. Um, you know, sometime in uh, October of last year, we announced a new round of uh, 30 plus million dollars, you know, um, over uh, over the last, uh, you know, five plus years that the company has been around. Uh, we've raised, uh, you know, you know, north of, you know, 60, 70 million dollars so far. Uh, so we've been very blessed and fortunate to have, uh, you know, investors and clients and customers uh, that have supported us in our journey. Very nice. Very nice. And, and where do you see your your industry going as a whole? Uh, so uh, let me let me give you this following take. Uh, you know, as we all know, data is the oil of the next uh, generation of economy. Uh, it's already the oil for many, many industries, as we know. Um, and what Pianova does is uh, provide a set of solutions in an area that we call active data governance. Uh, as we all know, uh, data uh, not only is the oil of the economy, uh, but, uh, you know, there's lots and lots of people around the world, including regulatory bodies, countries, governments, others, uh, that are wanting to make sure that data is handled correctly by, by the institutions. Uh, and if I'm a client and I'm providing data to any institution, uh, financial institution or otherwise. I want to make sure that my data is uh, secure, safe, protected, uh, that uh, my data is not being exploited in the wrong way. 
um, in uh, given the data world, uh, data security and data governance become very important. Uh, and the particular area that uh, Pirnova has chosen to focus on is in guaranteeing the correctness of the data and also ensuring that the data is governed and managed. All the policies and rules are correctly enforced on the data uh, so that any business uh, that uses the data uh, is a responsible, uh, you know, sort of data steward, custodian of that data uh, so that anyone using any data citizen using that data uh, can feel confident and secure that their data can be trusted um, uh, because the right uh, governance uh, uh, infrastructure is in place. So that's where we see Pirnava going. Uh, and we think this is a very big area. Uh, you know, GDPR uh, in Europe is an example of, uh, you know, where, uh, you know, people are trying to uh, say some, um, you know, uh, governance around the data. Uh, you know, state of California has uh, similar laws uh, in the U.S. There are lots and lots of laws about uh, data protection. Uh, so broadly, uh, the area that uh, Pirnova works on is this area called data governance. So how, how big do you think this market is? Um, you know, uh, it's already a fairly big market, by the way. Um, you know, there's, uh, uh, there's many, many different tools uh, broadly used in the active data governance area. Uh, you know, people have uh, what are called metadata management tools, uh, you know, uh, which in itself is a big category. It's about a billion dollar category today, uh, but growing very rapidly. Uh, then there are tools for doing data quality, uh, which is another probably about a billion dollar category. Uh, and this area uh, is also growing. Uh, there are other uh, areas, uh, you know, uh, aligned areas. How do you measure business SLAs? Uh, how do you ensure data quality? Quality, uh, you know, uh, you know, across end-to-end applications. Uh, so there are some new emerging applications coming. Uh, so uh, my forecast for this market is that uh, you know today it's about maybe net net it's about two billion dollars or so, but it's growing. Uh, it's going to be growing at a very rapid rate, and in the next five years, um, you know, tools for governing and managing your data are probably going to go to be a huge segment. Uh, you know, in the range of about ten billion within the next five years. Uh, this is my belief, uh, and that's why. You know, Pirnova is focused on this market. Got it. So one of the questions that uh, that I typically ask the guests that come on the show is, knowing what you know now, if you had the opportunity to go back in time and give that younger Gangesh, you know, that younger Gangesh that perhaps was thinking about launching a business, what would be that one piece of advice that you that you would give to your younger self and why, knowing what you know now before launching a business? Uh, well, uh, you know, it's a great question. Uh, you know. My, my, my first advice to my younger self is, uh, you know, learn patience. Um, you know, uh, things take longer than what you like. Building a business is, um, is, um, can be difficult, uh, but certainly requires patience. Uh, that's certainly one advice, uh, I would give. Uh, the second advice I would give, uh, to my younger self, uh, is, uh, learn how to actually, uh, sort of have the right kind of work life balance. Uh, this is a big thing I would give to my younger self. Uh, you know, my younger self, the younger Gangesh, used to want to run all the time and wanted everyone uh, in the company with him to run with him at the same pace. Um, and, uh, you know, because patience uh, is, the, uh, is the real uh, virtue here, uh, you need to know as an entrepreneur and founder, given all the difficult situations you'll face, how to learn uh, tools that would help you manage your work-life balance. Uh, so today, uh, you know, I have, you know, 
you know, sort of I have a, a morning routine, uh, you know, I, I meditate every day, um, you know, I have a certain, you know, exercise regimen, I try to follow that almost every single day. Uh, and uh, when I was younger, I just did not have the patience for it, or sometimes did not know the value of, uh, of tools like that. Uh, so that's what I would say. And I would say this to any entrepreneur, uh, learn how to, you know, uh, manage your work and life uh, in the right way. Uh, don't be just consumed by work, because at the end of the day, uh, it is life uh, that matters. Uh, and, uh, you know, so that would be the advice that I would give. I love it. I love it, Nagesh. So for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, well, uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, you know, uh, you can look me up, uh, Gangesh Ganesan, uh, CEO of uh, Pionova. Uh, you can look it up uh, on uh, pionova.com, uh, our website. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, come in and learn anything about us. Uh, at Pionova, we're always interested and excited to talk to new people, uh, always looking for new people to join our team. So uh, welcome, uh, you know, uh, emails uh, or connection requests through through LinkedIn. That would be the great, best way to uh, reach in touch with me. Amazing. Thank you so much, Angesh, for being on the DealMaker Show today. Thanks, Alejandro. Thanks for having me. Uh, great uh, being a part of your, uh, your journey and I uh, really appreciate the opportunity here. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.